Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. San Juana Martinez is a journalist from Mexico. She's investigated pedophilia scandals in the Catholic Church in her book, The Purple Robe. She's written about corruption in Mexico in their local, state, and federal government in her book, Those Who Love Power. She's here in Chicago as a guest of Penn International and the Chicago City of Refuge Initiative, talking to people about violence against journalists in Mexico. And it's great to meet you, San Juana Martinez. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. San Juana, you've written about really controversial things, both corruption, pedophilia, all sorts of issues. If somebody gets mad at me for doing an interview, they call me up, they yell at me. Uh, they say, hey, Jerome, you should have done a better interview. That was a lousy interview because. But if you're in Mexico, it's an entirely different kettle of fish. What happens in Mexico if someone is mad about what you do? Bueno, México se ha convertido en el país más peligroso para ejercer el periodismo after, después de Siria. Más de 160 compañeros... Mexico has become the second most dangerous place to do journalism, second only after Syria. More than 160 journalists have been killed in the last few years. Every 26 hours, a journalist is threatened or attacked. And the government doesn't do anything because it isn't convenient for the administration to promote freedom of expression. Can you explain who is doing the killing of the 160 journalists in just a few years? Uh, there's lots of armed actors, and it seems like the government, the non-government, the uh, organized crime, uh, there's a lot of different people who might want to kill a journalist, and is that what's happening? De acuerdo a las estadísticas dadas a conocer por la organización Artículo 19, el 70% de los crímenes contra periodistas es hecho por el gobierno, por funcionarios. According to the latest statistics by Article 19, a very reliable NGO, 70% of the murders are being committed by government actors. What's happened to you personally? I know that you know, I mentioned that you wrote a book on pedophilia in the Catholic Church a few years ago, and that would seem to be something where you wouldn't get a death threat. But you got a death threat from that? Sí, parece mentira, ¿no? Uh, it's incredible the the church works like a mafia, you know. La, la iglesia católica funciona como una mafia porque eh, tiene el código de... Yes, but it's a lie. Don't you see? The church functions like the mafia. It seems hard to believe that the church would go after someone in a way that's reminiscent of the mafia. They have their own code of silence. And yes, they pursue people. I have received terrible threats from state actors and also from the armed arm of the Catholic Church, which is called El Yunque in Mexico. What do journalists do to protect themselves? What actions do you take if you're getting a threat from whatever quarters? Not much. <laughs> you know, el problema es que el gobierno es juez y parte. Y uh, nosotros hemos creado redes. The problem is, is that the state is both the judge and the perpetrator. So who would we go to? The police? The army? The marines? To who? The only way we can survive is through our own network, from other NGOs. 
especially organizations like Penn International of San Miguel, which has the power to make us visible. Because the government doesn't do things in a very visible way against journalists that are that much in the public eye. Are there particular journalists you know who have been killed? Uh, what kind of situations are these? Sí, por ejemplo, en mi periódico La Jornada, el año pasado nos mataron a dos compañeros, Miroslava Bridge y Javier Valdés. Y eh, Miroslava cubría eh, la conexión de narcotráfico en, en las montañas, cómo estaba afectando yes. a la población. Just last year, my own newspaper. La Jornada, two of my colleagues were killed, Miroslava Bridge and Javier Valdez. Miroslava knew she could be murdered. In advance, she had prepared a will and prepared her place of burial in the event that she would be killed. She did this for her children so that they wouldn't have to prepare for their own mother's funeral. She was a single mother. It's so difficult to work in these conditions, knowing there's a gun pointing at your head. Javier Valdez is a good example of this. Javier was going to publish an interview he did with the successor of the Sinaloa cartel after Chapo Guzman's capture. Chapo Guzman himself sent death threats to Javier, warning him if he were to go ahead and publish the article, he would be killed. Despite these threats, Javier went forward and published his work because he knew the people deserved to know the truth. Within a few days, he was gunned down in the streets, dying of a bullet wound in the head. We are sick and tired of seeing our companions' corpses out on display like this. It's so horrible. The violence against male and female journalists, because there is a difference between the two. For example, a female colleague of mine who was reporting at the border of Nuevo Luerdo was kidnapped tortured, raped, and was mutilated. Her decapitated head was put out on display in a crowded plaza, along with a keyboard, so that others would identify her profession. These are crimes that have the intention of inhibiting the flow of information. Son crímenes ejemplares para inhibir el flujo informativo. Is it working? Sí. Sí, está funcionando porque eh, la, hay autocensura mm -hmm. para salvar la vida. Es, y es comprensible quien puede eh, criticar. Yes, it is working. There is a great deal of self-censorship right now. People don't want to die like this. It's completely understandable. It's not reasonable to criticize those who are silent in order to survive. Because of this censorship, there are only a small amount of journalists who are willing to report on taboo subjects. I'm talking with San Juana Martinez, a journalist from La Jornada, and she is talking about violence against journalism in Mexico. It's the number two country in the world for as far as violence against journalists after Syria. And I wanted you to expand a little more on what happens with women journalists and violence against women journalists. What are the particulars of that? Because there's so much talk about femicide in Mexico and the devaluation of women's lives. Uh, how does that particularly bear down on women journalists? 
Es muy importante tu pregunta porque realmente hay una diferencia entre ambas violencias. La violencia contra las mujeres periodistas tiene un componente de género y es el componente de la violencia sexual. Es decir, difícilmente un compañero periodista va a recibir amenazas de que lo van a violar o va a recibir una tortura sexual. Entonces, This is such an important question because the violence against women in Mexico in particular does have a gender factor within it. The threats against them include rape, sexual violence, and torture. It's very unlikely for this to happen to male journalists. These crimes could be considered femicide, but the government doesn't acknowledge this. This has not received the attention it should. There hasn't been any sort of exemplary case for showing this is a different type of crime. No one has been punished for these atrocities. Mexico is a land of femicide. First it was the murders of women from Juarez, then it was the murders of women from the state of Mexico, then murders of Veracruz. Everywhere. There are 6,000 femicides annually in Mexico. It's absolutely terrible. Seis mil feminicidios al año. Es, uh, es terrible lo que estamos viviendo. Is there anything coming along that might change the equation with violence in Mexico? It was a huge topic in the presidential campaign. Uh, there's a new president coming in. Is there any kind of strategy that you think would be effective against this onslaught of various actors committing violence? Bueno, tenemos una esperanza para el nuevo gobierno que empieza el 1 de diciembre con Andrés Manuel López Obrador. Eh, creemos que las cosas pueden cambiar. Los últimos sexenios han sido... Eh, We do have some hope with Andrés Manuel López Obrador's incoming administration, which will take office December 1st. The current government of Mexico over the last couple of years worsened the problem by militarizing the situation. Us journalists believe that Andrés Manuel López Obrador has the capability to make change. He guaranteed us of our safety. Currently, Fiscalia, an organ of the government that was created in order to protect journalists and human rights workers, has done nothing. At least 99% of the problems have not been attended to in any way. Obrador could change this. He could make this work for us all. Él llegará al gobierno con el compromiso de hacer justicia y de mejorar nuestra situación. Is there anything that outside people can do to help with violence in Mexico and violence against journalism in Mexico? Sí, claro. Yo creo que es importante el apoyo que nosotros eh, eh, recibamos del extranjero. Yes, help from outside countries can really help because the government is really concerned about its appearance. So when people write letters and complain about these crimes, the government does feel like it must act. Uh-huh. 
San Juana Martinez is a journalist from Mexico with La Jornada. She's investigated pedophilia in the Catholic Church. She's written about corruption in Mexico's state, local, and federal governments. She's been in Chicago talking about violence against journalists as part of a Penn International program and also as part of a Chicago City of Refuge initiative. She's been speaking at Loyola University. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the situation with journalists and violence in Mexico. Thank you very much, Jerome. Thank you. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milos Stalik and he'll talk about a new film that uses sports as a vehicle to explore genius. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's not often we get film contributor Milos Stalik talking about a sports-oriented movie. But Gabe Polsky doesn't make typical sports movies. His last film, Red Army, was about the 1980 Soviet hockey team. His new film uses sports as a vehicle to explore genius. It's called In Search of Greatness and features interviews with Wayne Gretzky, Pele, and Jerry Rice. Here's film contributor Milos Stalik. So, Gabe, your last film, Red Army, covered this magical Soviet hockey team and gave us a lot of insights into not only their success, but about this kind of magic on ice which they produced. So how did that film and your experience with it lead to your new film, In Search of Greatness? Well, I've always been kind of excited by creativity. What does that that mean? It means basically like... (laughs) You know, I guess it's synonymous with beauty and artistry and really high-level performance that is different than you've ever Mm -hmm. seen before that is, you know, maybe something that you couldn't do yourself before, let's say. In the case of the Soviet Union and their hockey program, they played a whole kind of different style than was ever seen in the world before. It was, you know, incredibly fluid and improvisational and almost like dance-like. Not the kind of hockey that you would see in North America, which was sort of linear and very brutal style of playing. So taking that one step further, you know, exploring kind of what I thought was the essence of sport in general um, and sort of greatness, this idea of creativity and the role it plays with the greatest athletes of all time. Well, we wouldn't necessarily think of creativity and sports together at the same time because yeah. usually the emphasis on sports is on training 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 and talent right yeah. i mean and so that's the problem i think that's the reason why i made this film is i do believe 100% that most people basically don't even understand what greatness is you know what is the essence of it okay when you watch a great movie you go to the theater what are you going there to see why are you going there same thing with sports you're you're in a stadium there are thousands of people watching 
they're paying money. Why are they there? Well, they're there because they want to see greatness. They want to see something they've never, again, witnessed. They want to see creativity. And nobody in the sports world, let's say, really appreciates that that idea that these guys are first and foremost performers. But uh, but so you know, th- but those are very elusive concepts, okay. right? Greatness, right? I mean, so how do we define yeah. greatness? So, what do you mean by that? The uh, seeing the unexpected. Yes. Okay. But if Milos, if we talk about like, let's talk about the greatest of all okay. time. So first and foremost, everyone points to statistics, right? So right, were, right. were they? Did they win the most championships? Yeah. And did they produce individually the the best statistics, the most goals, whatever it is? Okay, yeah. So the guys in my movie are the greatest of all time: Wayne Gretzky, Pele, Jerry Rice, in their respective fields. And in this movie is all from the perspective of the greatest athletes. But my what I'm saying is that these guys were were doing things the way that they became that way, statistically dominant, was by being creative and doing. And not doing exactly what others were doing, but but taking their their let's say weaknesses, which they all had plenty of, and sort of un- and and being creative about that, and and basically creating a new style of playing. So that was interesting and beautiful. And did you know this before knowing in going into the film, or something that you discovered gradually, or something that you suspected, or how? What was? Your- I think it's a combination yeah. where I, I had a deep kind of i guess studied it and and sort of understanding of that and wanted to communicate it because nobody else was but at the same time you know i learned a lot and was sort of blown away by some of the details that these athletes were giving you know well so how did you get all the sports figures that you were interviewed in the film to be self-reflective i mean to know to be able to tell you what that process well i think it was is really challenging i mean well, these guys were essentially icons, even for me. But you know, when you're a filmmaker, basically all you're there is to get something that is surprising and that nobody really knows about. That's interesting, engaging on a human level. Get into their minds, into their head, into their soul, and you have to do that in an intuitive way. The more you look at your questions and this and that, the less opportunity there is for getting inside of them. And so you just intuitively, like, look, I'm not your friend when you're interviewing them. Mm-hmm. You, you put that aside and, and just try and, in whatever way possible, get magic and something new for our audience. And so take one example. Wayne Gretzky, you spent a lot of time with, yeah. right? And it was interesting what you said about recognizing his weaknesses. So talk about this specifically. Yeah, so Gretzky, you know, was smaller than basically everybody. He, he, in size, physical his, size. Physical size. He was, you know, not as fast. He, he was considered slow by standard, you know, measurements. His shot wasn't very hard. And, you know, his skating style was strange and hunched over. Everything about him was basically pointed that this guy shouldn't be successful. Okay. But the level of dominance that he achieved is like, I mean, most people agree no one will ever catch him again. So you have to ask that question, like, how did that happen? If all we have are these measurements and these coaches and scouts and and people are sort of looking at the, all of these things, and yet you know someone completely upends all that, what does that say about everything? And what does it, it say? It says that basically don't judge a book by its cover. And you know, I talked to a Navy SEAL who'd seen the movie, and the first thing he said is, you know, the biggest mistake in an operation is to trust what you see. But still, even with Gretzky, with all these sports yes. figures, there was an awful lot of hard work, obviously. Yeah. And lots and lots of And everybody of knows that, yeah. Right. And so the creative part or the creativity which they brought to it 
was what? This way of figuring out something in a yeah. new well, way, kind of, main, of a eureka moment? Or? So one of the main themes in the movie is sort of the idea of unstructured play and basically just you know, not like rote drills, but basically being allowed to play and this idea that, you know, nowadays kids, they don't have enough time to just go out, knock on doors and play around in the backyard. It's everything structured and systematic. But these guys, you know, really felt that their whole reason why they were successful is that time when they were able to play around and find themselves, experiment, try different things and be on their own, use their imagination. That's where greatness came from. Uh, You know, with Pelé in the film, is the a great, great soccer ex- player example. Soccer and he player. says, you know, well, how are you great? Well, I played in the streets, you know, and that's where you kind of learn about your opponents and about trying things out and experimenting. You're listening to Volvia Milostelic speaking with filmmaker Gabe Polsky, whose new film is called In Search of Greatness. So even though all of the characters or all of the participants in this film are in the field of sports, it seems to me like this really has applicability to a lot of other things. And you've also exec produced a, a series genius. So how do you see parallels between the people that you interviewed and non-sports figures? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's really no difference at all in that, you know, you look at guys like, you know, Einstein and, you know, Steve Jobs and anyone who has achieved, you know, greatness in their field, all basically somehow approach their field in a different way than was before them. And, you know, our society is... Uh, it's human nature to sort of resist change and to be fearful of somebody who's doing something different for whatever reason. And that these people kind of succeed despite these forces that stifle creativity. And I think the more we understand that, the more we can have open-minded mentors and teachers that Instead of stifling creativity, they know how to encourage it and provoke it from people. Because we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and a lot of talented people get filtered out of the system prematurely. A lot of filmmakers who make uh, narrative dramatic films talk about their approach to handling actors by creating a secure space so that they can then feel secure enough to experiment or to take this kind of leap. And it seems to me that the parallel here in sports is all of this training, all of the technique that you gain that you have so that you also are ready for that moment to be able to capture it and to do that intuitive, creative, improvisational thing, which is going to be something extraordinary and different. Yeah, that's exactly, I mean, you you described it perfectly in that, yes, it's training so that you can be free ultimately Mm -hmm. of that, you know. You know the fundamentals so well, but that the game is shifting and changing in front of your eyes. You can't think about it. You know, you're, you're creating in the moment. You said someplace in an interview that Donald Trump was an example of this kind of greatness. Yeah, I knew. See? <laughs> well, oh, oh. Those things come to No, 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 no. You misquoted me there. <laughs> okay, but, but I didn't say he was great. I said what he did what? was creative. Okay. That's what I said. And that's a fact. Okay. No one can argue that. Okay. You know, he's sort of change politics you know now is that bad or good i mean that's for other people to decide but it seems like people were voting for they wanted something different and what i I don't even know if donald trump intentionally was like quote unquote trying to be creative or whatever but he was definitely like a guy that no one had seen before saying things that way you know but again i mean creativity anyone could be even you know somebody who might have malicious intent or, or not you know 
So what is the lesson from the film, from the people that you talked to, that you saw, that you filmed, that everyday individual who goes to see the film can take away and use? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of lessons in this film because the film covers a lot of ground. But I think anyone who's interested in understanding themselves, anyone interested in being kind of happy also and sort of understanding how to foster happiness because happiness and greatness completely related or correlated and is going to want to see this film and basically that kind of ending on this idea that you know greatness is really people who who have more joy in what they do than let's say the average person because joy becomes almost an obsession yeah it's interesting because in that way your film is almost kind of a philosophical essayistic exploration of concepts, right, which are not always present in society, but are not so often examined or even talked about. But I think when people experience the film, there's a lot of takeaway for their own lives. And the more you kind of understand fundamentals, what's going on, the more you can kind of apply it, I think. If you don't understand, if you're ignorant, you're just living a life that's sort of, I guess, untrue and I guess a delusion. And I would say that you don't need to love sports or know much about sports to see this film. Yeah, you don't need to know anything about sports to enjoy this film. You're listening to Will of You. I'm Milo Stalik speaking with filmmaker Gabe Polsky, whose new film, In Search of Greatness, opens at AMC River East and AMC Barrington. Thank you very much. Thank you, Milo. That's film contributor Milos Stalik from Facets. And one of the nice things that Milos does every year is to put on the Chicago International Children's Film Festival. He's doing it right now. I want to put in a plug for that. It's going on through the November 9th at eight different locations. And if you want to see a terrific international film with your child, something different, something that celebrates cinema just like Milos, you should check out the Chicago International Children's Film Festival running through November 9th. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Weekend Passport and let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend with Nari Safavi. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global friend Nari Safavi gives recommendations of things to do out there in the world, and it is great to see you, Nari. Uh, great, Jerome. Thank you, Jerome. It's great. Uh, good day. To, uh, it's a good day to be here, and uh, we are going to go to Latin America and Latino theater experiences in Chicago first. And the play we're uh, going to talk about is American Journalero, and we have the stage director here, Nate Santana. Great to meet you, Nate. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. And Ramon Kameen uh, is here. He is uh, Michigan in the play. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Great to be here. Tell us a little about the play, uh, Nate. Um, it's uh, it's kind of a set piece. You're you're at you're at a specific place. Yeah, American Ordinalero. It takes place um, right in front of a fence on the corner, um, right outside of a park. 
And it follows the story of these day laborers, the ornaleros, who go and they try to find work. Um, maybe you've seen them around Chicago. They're outside of a Home Depot or a corner. And on this particular day, they've um, they found a new spot because their previous spot at a Home Depot has been um, raided by this group called the Minutemen. They were formed in 2004, the Minutemen, right. and uh, it follows this Minutemen project. And what they essentially did, they kind of this uh, – they classified themselves as an activist group who kind of border, uh, monitored border – security and work. And on this day, a group of day laborers come in contact and they meet a group of Minutemen. Yeah. And it's set like around the fence over there. And the fence is very symbolic of Correct. crossing the borders. And there is a hole within the fence. And conversations happen between a guy who is supposedly a white nationalist, white supremacist kind of a guy or a Minuteman type. And also some of these who is pretending to be working, to be showing up over there for work. Or what's, what's exactly his story? The Minutemen. Yeah. The Minutemen. Well, in this this particular guy, there's two yeah. Minutemen in our story. Right. Um, and the the one who spends most of the time with the ornaleros there, um, it's his first day kind of on the job, oh, I see. so to speak. And so okay. he's kind of being indoctrined into this way of life by this older um, character named Toby. And he Toby is kind of the character who's kind of in the system. He's ready to go. He wants to crack up these guys. And Mark, the other... Um, character played by dylan kelleher he's um he he's kind of get caught up in the middle of this because he lost his job and he lost his um way of working and he's basically there to try and find work and do what he thinks is the right thing and so he kind of gets caught up in between toby's point of view and the ornaleros point of view um so there's really this whole sort of attention between white working-class Americans seeing the immigrants coming in here as competition for their work. So that's where the nervous yes. tension is really uh, coming from. And, uh, and Ramon, tell us a little bit about Michigan, your character. Michigan gets his name because he worked in Michigan, um, and he's the oldest of the jornaleros uh, that's there. Right. So he's kind of like their uh, leader or, or guide, you might say, and the one who tries to has, has the... Uh, the long view perspective of of there are ups and downs. Uh, at the beginning of the show, a couple of the younger ones are, are upset because they haven't gotten work in a couple of weeks. And so he's one who tries to keep them calm and know that work will come eventually. Yeah. Uh, well, where did the play come from? Who wrote it? Um, playwright is Ed Cardona Jr. He's based out of New York. And he wrote it because he was responding to a law that was being passed or that was up for debate in 2006. It was uh, H.R. 4437. And so around that time, um, basically uh, a very kind of uh, short explanation of the law in terms of anyone who came over or anyone who helped people come over would be classified as felons. And so that there were these big protests in 2006. And our kind of play kind of uh, picks up right in that time frame. Um, that's, that's when the play was set. Um, he, he's continuing to work on the play, but the play was, I think, written around 2009, 2010. Oh, fun. So he so, updates it. Yeah. So he's, he's updated <laughs> given our current political climate. But, you know, it, uh, it, it, it's really interesting, you know, um, Set in 2006, but so many things that have been happening to happen then are still happening and happening now. And the play mirrors a lot of um, our current situation. What's your favorite bit in the play, Ramon? Well, there are bits where we have a lot of fun uh, among all of us, amongst all of us, and also uh, with the with the poor guy who's there, who's starting his first day <laughs> as a minute man. Uh, but I think it's also. Uh, 
for me, one of the most important things we do in the play is to humanize these jornaleros and, and showing the sacrifices that they go through. You know, one of the characters, uh, his wife is showing up that day. She's also crossed with his daughter, who's eight years old, who he hasn't seen for eight years. And if you just stop and think about that, he hasn't right. seen his daughter for eight years, hasn't seen her take her first steps, say her first word. You know, there's another one who has two boys who his wife died. His family's taking care of him back in Mexico. It's, it's those kind of things, humanizing, rehumanizing right. people who have been right. dehumanized. Mm. Right, right. And who are the people who are basically using this jornalero labor? Uh, what... It could be anything. It could be anyone. Some of it's contractors. Some of it's individuals. I mean, it's um, they, there's a part in the play. You know, Mark's role in the play is to come there, give these guys a really hard time, but also he's there to uh, capture the people or take pictures of the people who may be picking them up. And they can be anybody, individuals, contractors. Right. Um, you know, it's still a, something that a lot of people do uh, now. Uh, tell us, if, like— if, how are audiences reacting to this? Do you do you have kind of, ch- kind of chance afterwards and do the do the whole thing? Yeah. So um, the talkbacks for this show have been really really great. I will say part of the show is in Spanish and part of the show is in English. And there's a lot of fun in this play. A lot of the jokes are um, in Spanish. So I think uh, <laughs> native speakers or people who who get the jokes of that will really really appreciate it. And if you don't speak Spanish, uh, I'm sorry. It, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fun that goes into it. But I think the thing about it is that th- people have been responding to is that everyone here has valid concerns and um, uh, feelings about how the world and this particular issue is going. What I think becomes a problem is how how they choose to deal with it, essentially. And so um, it's been, the discussions have been very compassionate. And I think one of the things that I hope people take away from this is to deal with this issue with compassion as opposed to hate. And that's been, it's been a very um, wonderful dialogue and very personal for a lot of people. You know, they see themselves on stage. They see their parents um, on stage in terms of what they had to go through. And it, and it has made people, um, I think, really emotional and really um, kind of captivated by hearing these stories. I should say that this is a part of a series of plays uh, that are Latino-themed or could be Latin American writers called Destinos. And it's been Correct. going on as a festival for several weeks. It's like a six-week festival. Yeah. So, and uh, and it uh, seems like there's several different companies are involved in it and uh, theater companies were involved in it. And you guys moved your show from one to another. So in case people are looking it up, make sure they show up at the right address. Please tell us what the address is where, you, where you're doing your player well, right we're t- um, so all of the information could be found at theatrevista.org okay. and we're currently we were at Victory Gardens right and now we're at Urban Theater um, yeah. which 2620 is West Division yes yeah. thank you yeah <laughs> and uh, so that uh, and uh, is it different doing it there <laughs> you've, got a, you've <laughs> exactly. got a different audience there well yes it's, it's a little different in terms of space we're a little bit more black box um, in um, Urban Theater but it feels I think um, a little bit more can it's good for the play because it feels like the weight of the world is on these characters. And, you know, it just takes place like, uh, like we talked about in, on a corner in front uh, of a, of a fence. And it really adds to the, to the feeling of, of kind of being in, you know, the ca- the fence in some way represents like a cage almost. And so it really, you feel the weight bearing down on all of these characters throughout the play. So I think the, the, the space really helps. Well, congratulations. It sounds like it's a really interesting experience for people to go and see. And, they can, and it runs through November 18th. You're at Urban Theater, 2620 West Division. 
and that's American Hornolero, and Nate Santana is the stage director. Ramon Kameen plays Michigan in uh, American Hornolero. Congratulations on the play. Keep up the good work. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Nari, uh, we have more things to uh, talk about. I understand you had a nice, interesting uh, conversation the other day with the former conductor of the CSO. Yeah, uh, Maestro uh, Daniel Barenboim, who is uh, not only a brilliant, brilliant musician and a conductor, but also quite a bit of an art activist. He had put together a project going back to 1999 with Edward Said called the Divan Project, which is based on the collection of books of a Persian poet, uh, Hafez. And uh, he brings in uh, Israeli and Syrian and Palestinian and Iranian musicians together, and they perform these symphonic uh, projects together. And he is back in town. He's doing a series of concerts this weekend at the CSO. And on Monday, he has the Divan Project uh, performing on Monday night. And they are going to perform uh, Don Quixote by Strauss and Tchaikovsky's uh, Symphony Number no. 5. This is a clip of the West Eastern Divan Orchestra doing Beethoven's 7th. Beethoven's ninth. Okay, I got it wrong. Beethoven's ninth. <laughs> That's a little bit of the West Eastern Devon Orchestra with Daniel Barenboim conducting, and that's a wonderful project that he does, bringing together uh, people from musicians from all throughout the Middle East. They go to Spain every summer and rehearse yeah. it up. Yeah, they have a, they have a, they have a cl- uh, they have actually class and they have seminars over at the Sevilla. Uh, in Seville, in Spain, in Andalusia. And uh, they do some really wonderful work, and they have scholarships for these musicians all over the Middle East. And he said to me the other night uh, that he, well, almost like 800 musicians have gone through the system as performing, and they've all become almost like global ambassadors for this project. And, so, and it sounds like they have very interesting discussions among themselves about politics and things. They and do. And is... with some luck, I'm going to try to drag uh, Maestro Barenboim over here and record a conversation with him sometime next week. Uh, so stay tuned for that possibility. And WBEZ is a media sponsor of the Western Eastern Devon Orchestra. The concert is Monday night, and we do have five pairs of tickets for Monday night. And if you're interested in going and seeing the Western Eastern Devon Orchestra, call us at 312-923-9239, 312-923-9239. We will take the first five callers, and they'll get a pair of tickets, and you get to go see uh, Daniel Barenboim conducting the Western Eastern Devon Orchestra. The phone number one more time, 
923-9239. Nari Safavi, we have more on our docket here on Weekend Passport. Uh, where are we going next? Absolutely. And last but not least, uh, the, there, is a, there is a gala going to be uh, happening on Tuesday night at the Chicago History Museum. Uh, Muslim American Leadership Alliance is, a, is an organization that has partnered with NPR and the Story Corps to tell the story, to be a platform for storytelling by uh, Muslim Americans. And they're having a gala and they're helping the Chicago History Museum organize a show for the history of uh, Chicago's Muslims. Uh, and they're having this sort of a launch of this project uh, on Tuesday night. And we have the uh, Chicago President of the of Mala here with us, uh, Ahmed Flex Omar. Uh, Ahmed Flex Omar. <laughs> Good to see you. I, mean, I should say just Ahmed Omar. You are your your official name. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, tell us a little about the first of all the Muslim American Leadership Alliance. What is it? Sure, absolutely. We're a storytelling platform and arts and culture organization, and um, we our first partnership was actually with uh, StoryCorps. And uh, we started recording um, stories of uh, Muslim Americans from all over the country. But being founded in Chicago, um, our first one of our first partnerships was also WBEZ. And then our stories started landing on NPR. After that, um, the audio recordings started getting archived at the Library of Congress in uh, Washington, uh, D.C. And uh, we basically helped create the first ever Muslim American uh, heritage database. That sounds really cool. I understand Nari did one. Nari, Nari recorded yes, his story I did, I did. recently at the StoryCorp booth, and I uh, learned a lot more, you know, about Nari and his uh, travels, and you know, being part of the Latino Film Festival, and his love for you know food and cuisine, and it's just amazing how much you can learn from someone in just thirty-minute, you know, uh, conversation. Uh, so, what are some of the other conversations that you thought were really valuable that you brought to light there? Yeah, abs- absolutely. My first interview, actually, at StoryCorp was with uh, Ibu uh, Patel. Ah, we talked to him yesterday. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> and um, his story was about, you know, growing up uh, wanting to be white. And um, he, ta- he touched upon the experience that he had going to Urbana, you know, Champaign. And he was an avid basketball player. And when he went to go play basketball, he would gravitate more towards playing with, you know, his uh, white classmates. But then he started realizing, well, what's the difference between me playing with the African-Americans or the Indians? And no difference. So, um, and I was honored that that was my first interview and it landed on NPR, which was, <laughs> which was, uh, which was uh, incredible. Wow. Uh, and tell us a little bit about what the Chicago History Museum is doing and how you're collaborating with them. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, the project that we have with the Library of Congress is an oral history project, right. and it's called Muslim American uh, Journeys. And um, we've done a listening uh, party here in Chicago with the National Hellenic Museum, and I met the folks from the Chicago History Museum through that. And um, they notified us that they're working on an oral history project uh, titled uh, Chicago Muslims, and they asked us if we could be uh, project advisors Excellent. on on um, on an exhibit that's happening in 2019. Wow! So right now we're in uh, the process of helping the uh, museum collect uh, these uh, these stories of uh, regular uh, Chicago Muslims, you know, all of all over this all over the city, 
and the uh, exhibit is going to be produced in uh, 2019 in the fall. That's when it's going to open its doors. Okay. Ahmed, you have your own yourself. You have a very interesting background. Tell us a little bit about your own life story. Sure, abs- uh, absolutely. I was uh, born in Somalia, present-day uh, Somaliland. I escaped uh, genocide and civil war. Um, luckily, was able to start a new life with my family. Um, in Abu Dhabi, in the well, Emirates. Wait, wait a second. Yeah. If you fill that in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what kind of what kind of genocide and civil war forced your family to flee? Well, uh, my family were in uh, a part of a part of the government, and we had a dictator that came into power from the south, from Mogadishu, and we were from the north, and we were this majority clan called the Sa clan, and he uh, decided that he didn't want such a large, you know, opposition and. Uh, went the ethnic cleansing round, of, unfortunately. So we knew what was coming, and uh, we we left a few years before it actually, you know, happened. So, but growing up in Abu Dhabi on my kitchen table, I could, you know, um, hear my parents having conversation about what was going on and what was um, happening. I mean, we didn't even have time to grieve. Our focus was mainly on because we were in a privileged position, flying in, you know, folks and family members uh, for, you know, life altering you know, uh, surgeries. And I went back to Somaliland in 94, and that was like a year after uh, Black Hawk Down, I believe, and the carnage uh, was um, unbelievable. But, you know, they've rebuilt um, since then. It's the it's the stable place. Yeah, Somaliland yeah. is so the stable it's place. It's a stable now. place yeah. in in East Africa. We had successful transitions of uh, power. You know, it's a democratic you know country. Completely but unrecognized. Completely un- unre- unrecognized. <laughs> strangely, Stra- strangely, but uh, uh, the people are resilient and they're surviving. And um, yeah. When did you come to the U.S.? Uh, I came to the U.S. in uh, 2000, in October, uh, to Chicago, and I've been here ever since. Did the I rest know. of your family come? What happened to everybody yeah. else? <laughs> <laughs> well, my mother was my, 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 no, my mother was here in, uh, first in '94. In so in that trip in, uh, to Somaliland, my mom came here, and then um, I followed her in 2000 after I was finished with school. Ah. And then in 2001, I brought my uh, three sisters who were younger than me. So I helped raise them um, over here in uh, Chicago, and I'm proud to say that they're all doing well right now. No, no. It's, uh, uh, you uh, have, have a, you have a lot to be proud of. Uh, and the challenges and the adversities that you and your family have overcome, and uh, and it's amazing to see you, uh, you know, work and operate in the Chicago cultural scene. A lot of people, key people in the cultural scene of Chicago, know who you are. Thank you. And I won't even talk about the friends uh, you have who own nightclubs. <laughs> there is really, uh, you know, it's really great. And you were an avid uh, uh, Loyola Ramblers fan. And Abs- abs- you went absolutely. to the Loyola University. Graduate of Loyola <laughs> Un- University. And I'm very <laughs> proud of the school's accomplishments in um, our recent NCAA basketball, you know, championship run. Well, uh, for people who are interested in the gala, um, mm-hmm. what should they know? Abs- absolutely. All the information is on our website. It's on malanational.org. Uh, it's happening um, Tuesday on election night. 
Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the elephant in the room, so I might as well put are, it out there. Are you going to put up some TVs? Is this for people who are trying to get away? Are you going to be watching? Or I, what are you going to do? I, I think with enough smartphones, uh, people can <laughs> keep, you know, uh, keep, uh, keep track of what's happening. But the event is from 7 uh, to 10 uh, p.m. And at the event, we're also doing our inaugural uh, Community uh, Builders Awards, where we award um, individuals who serve served uh, the community in different um, categories, whether it be leadership, uh, journalism, uh, philan- uh, philanthropy, and it also marks the Any one Any names year. we'd recognize? Um, <laughs> 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 well, he's <laughs> easier in the studio. Nari, <laughs> you're yeah. true. I don't believe this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it came in last minute. <laughs> and, and, Jer- and Jerome, you can talk about Nari's, uh, <laughs> you know, work in terms of, you know, sh- his contributions, you know, to Chicago culture and arts and history and even, and even my organization and the amount of, you know, support that um, he's he's given us is just um, incredible. So, Nari, we're honored to honor you. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm, I'm very humble, and this all happened last minute. I had no idea that all of this was going on. So, Well, uh, congratulations on everything you're accomplishing. Now, if people think, uh, boy, I have heard this segment on Mala, and I think I have a story to tell, uh, do they contact you? Is there some way to get uh, more? That Absolutely. should people say, I, I can do it. Absolutely, they can go to our website, and also they can email us at info at malanational dot uh, org. All right, the Mala Gala is on Tuesday, November sixth, and the, we all know that's Election Day, and that's at the Chicago History Museum, a appropriate place to be on Election Day. Uh, congratulations on everything you're doing, and uh, take care, and we'll see you soon. Nice to see you, Ahmed Omar, president of the Muslim American Leadership Alliance. Thank you so much. Nari Safavi, good to see you, my friend. It was great to be here again. Nari Safavi's Weekend Passport will be back next week, and we'll continue to take you around the world while you're in Chicago. Hope you can join us next week for Worldview. Monday on the program, we are going to have a chat with Ian Bremmer. He is a thought leader, whatever that means, and he um, writes books. He has a risk analysis firm. He's got maybe the best uh, Twitter feed in the world of foreign policy, and I taped an interview with him at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs the other day. We talked about his new book, Us and Them, The Failures of Globalism, and we will air that Monday on Worldview. Join us for Ian Bremmer on Monday. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gali Abdullah and uh, Viviana Garcia-Blanco. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.